Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. After Lizzie Borden's parents were killed in Fall River, Massachusetts in 1892, she became a prime suspect in their deaths. The crime has fascinated New Englanders for over a century. We find in the case a way to project our own fears and anxieties. It's one of the strangest true crime stories of all time, and we'll explore the gruesome history this week on Next from the New England News Collaborative. Plus, a new investigation finds one state's 911 system is falling short. I continue to see cases where I think that we could have saved people. That's driving me crazy. And how a rising pop star got her start in rural New England. I want to be addicted to my own songs. You know, that's my goal when I write my songs is I want them to be just like, have to play it again, have to play it again. It's bubblegum pop. You have to chew on the bubblegum, and then when it loses its flavor, you put another piece in. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. One morning last year, a panicked call came in to Rhode Island's 911 Emergency Center about a six-month-old baby in the town of Warwick. What transpired during the nearly four-minute call reveals a system so flawed it's virtually set up to fail. Lynn Arditi of the Publics Radio and the ProPublica local network has been investigating the state's 911 system, which is an outlier in New England. And a warning to our listeners about the story, it contains graphic and disturbing content. Here's Lynn. 911 is your emergency. I have a baby. He's unresponsive and he has throw up around his mouth and nose. In a medical emergency, every minute matters. It can mean the difference between life or death. And that was the case this Friday morning in February of 2018. Okay, is the Anna's back? She's throwing up right now. Six-month-old Elijah had gone down for his nap. About 20 minutes later, he was found unconscious. The baby's aunt, Jessica, is talking with 911. My aunt's on his back. Uh, Make sure he's not on his back. Make sure he's on his back. Not on his back. He's on his back, but he's turning purple. Not, not turning purple is a sign the baby isn't breathing. But 18 seconds into the call, the woman at 911 is still trying to position the baby to prevent choking. I would say that this particular call is in the top 15 worst calls I've ever heard in my life. Maybe in the top 10. That's Dr. Jeff Clausen, medical director of the International Academies of Emergency Dispatch in Salt Lake City, Utah. He's one of three experts that reviewed the call the family shared with the public's radio. Clausen says the call is a tragic example of what's wrong with the way Rhode Island is training its 911 call takers. For one thing, the call taker missed the most basic signs that the baby wasn't breathing. If the baby was breathing this shallow thing, the baby is not breathing adequately, that was reinforced by fingers and things turning blue. And the baby was also, uh, at times, clearly not breathing. When a baby is not breathing or not breathing normally, that's critical because every minute without oxygen increases the likelihood of brain damage and death. So a 911 call taker needs to figure out whether or not the baby is breathing normally in the first minute or so of the call. 
Dr. Peter Antevi is a pediatric emergency medicine physician and medical director for several EMS agencies in South Florida. Not breathing normally and not conscious, that equals cardiac arrest, that equals the need for CPR. Rhode Island public safety officials have defended the way their system is set up, pointing out that call takers are certified in Red Cross CPR and basic first aid. But other states do it differently. In every other New England state, as well as Pennsylvania and New Jersey, among others, 911 calls for cardiac arrest and other medical emergencies are handled by certified emergency medical dispatchers, or EMDs. They're trained to follow carefully scripted instructions to guide someone over the phone to perform CPR. One medical dispatch expert compared these instructions to a pilot's pre-flight checklist. Seattle developed emergency dispatch training decades ago with explicit focus on telephone CPR. And they saw very quickly that they were literally snatching lives from the jaws of death among patients who had cardiac arrest in their homes and in the community. Dr. Mickey Eisenberg is medical director of King County Emergency Medical Services in Seattle, Washington. He says there's a huge opportunity for improving survival rates in places like Rhode Island through better CPR training. If every community had sort of a clone of the Seattle-King County program, including bystander CPR and telephone CPR, you're talking about tens of thousands of additional lives saved. Currently, about 1 in 10 people who experience an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in Rhode Island survive. But experts say the survival rate could double or triple or more, potentially saving hundreds more lives each year. That's if they were given CPR in the first few minutes after a cardiac arrest. That didn't happen with the baby in Warwick. About one minute into the call, the baby's aunt, Jessica, asked the woman at 911, Do we give a mouth-to-mouth? What do we do? Jessica never got a good answer. The 911 call taker repeatedly asked the baby's age, She gives unhelpful instructions, like the ones taught in basic first aid for a baby who is actively choking. And more than one minute into the call, she still hasn't figured out if the baby is breathing. breathing. Okay, he's not not breathing. Are you sure he's not breathing? breathing. You're you're sure he's not breathing? Because you can't do CPR if he's breathing at all. Because she said you can't do CPR if he's breathing at all. Doctors Antevi and Clausen say that statement is just plain wrong. When she says... We cannot do CPR if the baby's breathing. That's not true. It's if the child or adult is not breathing normally, then you have to move to the next step, which is start CPR. No fussing around. uh, No telling them, well, we can't do this if he's breathing. Matter of fact, I've never heard that on a call in my life. The call goes on. At 3 minutes and 37 seconds, the woman at 911 finally sounds convinced the baby is not breathing and needs CPR. And she tells this to the family like it's a choice rather than a life-saving intervention. Okay. All right. So who's going to give a CPR? Yeah. Do, you, do you want to give them CPR? The call ends abruptly after 3 minutes and 51 seconds when paramedics arrive. And still, the baby has not received CPR. The lack of good pre-arrival medical instructions from 911 frustrates Jason Umbenhauer. He's the deputy chief of emergency medical services at the Warwick Fire Department. There's got to be something. We're doing everything that we possibly can to increase those rates of survival from cardiac arrest. We do advanced training. We use advanced equipment. We try to shorten our response times. But when it comes to what happens prior to our arrival, uh, unfortunately, it's not in their control. 
So they a lot of times wish that somebody would do, tell somebody to do something before we get there. Umbenhauer reviews every emergency call for cardiac arrest that comes into his station. There were more than 80 cardiac arrests in 2018. And only about a quarter of those patients had CPR before EMS workers arrived on the scene. That compares with 40% to 75% who receive CPR before EMS arrives in places like Seattle that have programs to improve care for out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. And I continue to see cases where I think that we could have saved people. That's driving me crazy. That's Dr. Joseph Loro, an emergency medicine physician at three hospitals in Rhode Island. He's been helping lead the fight to improve emergency care for cardiac arrest patients. You know, it's something that's a relatively easy fix. It's something that we can do. It's something that's been studied. It's something that happens elsewhere. So why the hell aren't we doing it? Why don't we do it? Loro and other members of the Rhode Island chapter of the American College of Emergency Physicians are behind a bill introduced in the General Assembly this year that would mandate 911 call takers provide pre-arrival instructions for medical emergencies. The bill, sponsored by Representative Mir Ackerman, a Democrat from Cumberland, would require the 911 center to be staffed at all times by at least one call taker who is trained in telephone CPR. Only one for the entire state? That's Dr. Antevi, who heads EMS services in South Florida. One EMD-trained person for an entire state is clearly not enough. It took just three minutes for the Warwick Fire Department to arrive at Barbara's house. She was waiting at her front door, Elijah in her arms. An emergency medical technician whisked the baby into the ambulance and within a minute began CPR. The baby had no pulse and was not breathing. At 10.39 a.m., about 20 minutes after arriving at Hasbro Children's Hospital, Elijah was pronounced dead. The final autopsy report said the baby had been propped on his left side with a bottle in his bassinet. He was later found unresponsive on his back. The report states the cause of death as sudden, unexplained infant death. Afterwards, everyone had questions. The police, the state child welfare agency, the neighbors who saw the police parked in front of their house. The baby's aunt Jessica describes the scene. It's the worst, most emotional day of your life, but they don't treat you like a victim. They treat you like a suspect. But as for the 911 call, nobody asked about that. But I specifically remember here, not a single person ever questioned anything about the 911 call, ever. I mean, there were a million other questions. No one ever said, you know, what what was the 911 call like? Did they give you clear instructions? Did they... Mm. Nope. Nope, never asked. Not once. Not once. None of them. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Lynn Arditi. That story is part of a year-long reporting project between the Public's Radio and ProPublica's local reporting network. Investigative reporter Lynn Arditi is here with us now. Lynn, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Since you filed that story, you reported that doctors and EMS leaders are calling for changes to the 911 system in Rhode Island. Tell us a bit more about what's going on there. Sure. Well, the frustration is really palpable among first responders. The director of emergency medical services in East Providence, Rhode Island, testified before a House Legislative Committee that time after time we've seen cardiac arrests that do not get CPR until after the rescue shows up. 
And an emergency medicine physician says that by the time patients arrive at the hospital ER, it's often too late. They've been without oxygen for five minutes or longer, and they're severely brain damaged and often don't live. My goodness. So they're looking for changes. Now, you've reported that the staff from the Department of Public Safety in Rhode Island is traveling to New Hampshire to examine the system there. What about New Hampshire are they interested in? What are they looking at? Well, New Hampshire 911 call takers are certified in what's called emergency medical dispatch, and that includes training in how to deliver CPR instructions by phone. And New Hampshire's 911 center is similar to Rhode Island's 911 center in that those people who work there do not dispatch any police, fire, or rescue services directly. Both Rhode Island and New Hampshire's 911 center call takers contact the local police, fire, or rescue dispatcher in the community where the emergency is, and that local dispatcher then sends the appropriate equipment and personnel. Hmm. So they're similarly set up. Just to, to make sure our listeners understand that Rhode Island really is an outlier here. As you said in your story, All the other states in New England, except for Rhode Island, uh, the calls are handled by people certified in emergency medical dispatch. So this really would be a big change for your state. That's correct. Yes. All the emergency medical calls in every other New England state, except for Rhode Island, are handled by people who are certified in emergency medical dispatch, or EMD. You've reported that Rhode Island's 911 acting director was removed from his post. What happened there? Well, in reporting the story, I, you know, contacted the Rhode Island State Police uh, to find out what uh, Gregory Scungio's Red Cross certification was. He was the acting uh, director. And about 48 hours later, they put out a news release announcing that Mr. Scungio had been removed from his job because the Red Cross certification he had had expired in February of 2016. And that was a surprise. But, you know, even if his certification had been up to date, I think the important point here is that the Red Cross doesn't teach these call takers how to perform CPR over the telephone. And that's really key. Knowing how to perform CPR when a person collapses in front of you is very different from knowing how to instruct someone to do it over the phone. And Rhode Island's 911 call takers aren't getting that training. This training seems so, so important. But what else about this system needs an overhaul? You've you've been reporting on this, and you found other things happening with the Rhode Island 911 system. What what else should we know? Rhode Island is different from its neighboring states, including Connecticut and Massachusetts, both in the type of training 911 employees receive. We're also different in the instructions we give callers, and Rhode Island's different in the involvement of doctors uh, in terms of supervising the system. We have less supervision. We don't have medical directors overseeing those the center, the 911 center. I I know that as part of your project with ProPublica throughout this year, you're also calling out to listeners and asking for some of their experiences with the emergency system in Rhode Island. What information are you hoping to get from your listeners? Well, we really want to hear firsthand from people who've called 911 for help and, you know, whether it be for a cardiac arrest or any other type of medical emergency. And we want to know what it was like. What did the 911 call taker ask them? Uh, What did they tell them to do, if anything? Did they stay on the line with them until the ambulance arrived? And if not, did they or somebody else have to call 911 back and say, hey, what should we do? What's going on? I mean, it may seem like a trivial bit of information, those few exchanges, but it's really not. And every second counts. So we really want to hear what happened. 
Lynn Arditti is an investigative reporter for the Publix Radio in Rhode Island. She's working on a year-long reporting project with ProPublica's local reporting network to examine that state's 911 emergency system. And if you've made a 911 call in Rhode Island or been the subject of one, let them know. Go to ProPublica.org slash Rhode Island 911 or send an email to Rhode Island 911 at ProPublica.org. One very important part of the 911 system is the rapid response of emergency medical services, or EMS. But in rural parts of Vermont, fewer people are volunteering to staff ambulances. Costs are going up and services are getting harder to deliver. VPR's Howard Weiss-Tisman has been reporting on this issue, and he joins us now. Howard, welcome back to Next. Thanks for joining us. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. You recently reported that small towns are considering closing or merging EMS, largely due to a a lack of volunteers. What's going on? Well, the issue has been going on for a few years, but a lot of people say the challenges facing EMS companies are really reaching a tipping point. Now, in Vermont, we have a patchwork of all-volunteer and part-volunteer and even some fully paid staff at our EMS and ambulance companies. And for those ambulance services that rely on volunteers and even those that pay something, there's just not enough bodies, especially in our most rural towns. Vermont has some real demographic challenges. Young people are leaving and the rest of us are growing older. And these ambulance services can't fill their open slots. The town of Cabot is way up in the Northeast Kingdom, and Andy Luce has been working there for more than 30 years. And this is what he told VPR about the problem they've been having with staffing. We got a bunch of people we trained. They went to other services or moved out or went to college, didn't come back, or went to the service and didn't come back. So at town meeting earlier this month, Cabot voted to shut down its full-time ambulance company and put some money aside to contract with a nearby service. And the town also set up a committee to try to come up with some long-term solutions. So uh, a lack of young people who want to get into this business, that's a part of it. But it seems it's becoming harder and more expensive to become a volunteer. Tell us more about that. Yeah, that's right. There, there are many more requirements now than there were 10 or 20 years ago. EMS crew members have to be certified and they have to get their credentials updated every few years. This costs money and it takes time, and EMS directors say that makes it even harder to convince people to join, even when they can track down someone who has interest and time to serve. So what are some of the other issues that ambulance services across the state are facing right now, Howard? Well, insurance and federal reimbursements don't really cover what it costs to drive out, again, especially in rural regions where ambulances might have farther to travel. Um, Rural areas are serving aging and low-income residents who tend to be sicker, so call volumes are up statewide. Um, Equipment is much more expensive now, and struggling communities that maybe had a paper mill or a manufacturing plant to lean on in the past, that help just isn't there anymore. And EMS directors say the low unemployment rate is hurting them. Even when you're getting paid, there are plenty of other opportunities to work in something that maybe makes better money and which is much less stressful. And, you know, people talk about just how difficult some of this work is, traveling out to treat your neighbors and coming face-to-face with mental health issues, abuse and opioid overdoses, and seeing some tough living situations. It's tough work. So there are a lot of challenges out there. Yeah, so with the challenges for staffing EMS and some of the financial problems you've talked about, are we actually seeing some problems in response time? Is it, is it harder for Vermonters who call 911 to get the services that they expect? 
Yeah, so what we're seeing is that as more companies close or reduce their service, it, it puts a strain on the whole system. Ambulance and fire departments rely on a mutual aid system, and when one town needs help, they can call their neighbor. But as towns struggle more and more, it's just harder to back each other up, again because there are fewer bodies. A recent report found that response times, especially in the rural areas, inched up last year. And when you're dealing with life and death situations, a few minutes here and there really make a difference. So we are seeing an impact right now from this problem. So, so what is the solution? What are people telling you? Well, it's tough, and that's what has people so concerned right now, is that there really isn't an easy fix to all of this. Uh, Vermont and some of the other New England states are trying to figure out how to get more young people to live in rural areas. There's some talk of asking the state to cover the licensing and training costs or maybe help out with low reimbursement rates, but there's not a lot of money floating around Montpelier right now. Gwyn Zakoff is with the group Vermont League of Cities and Towns, which is a statewide lobbying organization that advocates for municipalities in the state house. And Zakoff says we're at a critical point now, and we need to start looking at the problem from a system-wide perspective. And then it has to come from the state level as saying, okay, this is the priority, and we need to talk about regionalization and how to get there. It's just not going to happen at the local level until it either gets to a crisis mode or you have direction from the legislature. Um, Last year, lawmakers asked for a report, which came out earlier this year, and it found that almost 80% of those that responded say it's hard finding volunteers and staff. So lawmakers this year are talking about workforce development and about working with community colleges and high schools to generate more interest in training for EMS work. Some towns are putting reserve funds away or agreeing to pay stipends or even bringing on paid staff for the first time, but... I think, unfortunately, we'll probably see more ambulance and EMS companies shutting down before any real changes are put in place. Hmm. Howard Weiss-Tisman is VPR's reporter for Southern Vermont and the Connecticut River Valley, and you can find links to his reporting at nexttonewengland.org. Howard, thanks as always for joining us. I appreciate it. You're welcome, John. Coming up, how a pop star who made a splash at South by Southwest got her start in rural New England. But first, the strange tale of Lizzie Borden. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and global warming. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwabstone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. In 1892, in Fall River, Massachusetts, Andrew Borden and his wife Abby were found dead in their home, hacked to death. A short time later, Andrew's daughter Lizzie was arrested for their murders. It was once called the trial of the most extraordinary criminal case in the history of New England, and it was a case that fascinated the region at the time and continues to more than 100 years later. Author Cara Robertson goes into detail in her new book, The Trial of Lizzie Borden. She joined us to discuss the fascinating, enduring case and started by telling us about the murders that started it all. Andrew Borden was found hacked to death in his home, and then shortly thereafter, his wife Abby's body was discovered. It seemed at first to be the work of a madman. So many blows had been delivered 
that Mr. Borden's face was almost unrecognizable. But there were a few problems with the theory of an outside perpetrator. The first was that the house seemed to be locked. It was certainly locked at the front and the back. There was a side door that by custom was kept latched, but it was possible that someone could have come in from the outside. And the biggest problem was that was that it was discovered that the murders happened about an hour and a half or two hours apart, which meant that if an outsider had come in, that person would have had to elude the people in the house to commit the murders. And it was, you know, it was a narrow house with not a lot of places to hide, and therefore that seemed pretty unlikely. So suspicion turned to the people known to be in the house at the time of the murders. Andrew Borden's brother-in-law from his first marriage, John Morse, spent the night there, but he departed shortly after breakfast, and Abby Borden wasn't killed until about 9.30, and he had the sort of alibi that comes only in a detective novel, that he was riding a streetcar with six priests. (laughs) There were two women in the house at the time, one the family's domestic servant, Bridget Sullivan, who was seen washing windows outside at the time that Mrs. Borden was killed. And it was believed that whoever killed one person killed the other, so that seemed to rule her out. And finally, there was the Borden's youngest daughter, Lizzie, who gave shifting accounts of her whereabouts during the critical periods of both crimes and also said that her stepmother had received a note to go out which explained why she didn't go look for her stepmother after she found her father dead. No note was ever found. What exactly was Lizzie Borden like at the time before this murder? What what do we know about her and her life? So much of what we know about Lizzie Borden comes from descriptions of her at the trial and afterwards, so it's difficult to answer the question thoroughly. What we can say is that she seemed to tick all the boxes of proper middle-class womanhood. She was unmarried and she lived at home with her father. She had no need to work outside the home, but she engaged in all the culturally sanctioned activities for a woman of her class, particularly church activities. She was the secretary treasurer of the local Christian Endeavor Society based at her church. So she seemed in that respect quite ordinary. What she had that was distinctive was she had a blankness (laughs) She almost seemed a bit like a cipher for people who didn't know her. Hmm. Describe a bit more about that. What what did that mean in terms of the way people viewed her or thought about her? That meant that at the trial, what was noted was her extraordinary self-possession, that she seemed to be, as one reporter put it, the most unconcerned person in the room. And people who were sympathetic, particularly the journalists from out of town who were sympathetic, tended to view that as a an inborn dignity that was consistent with with the mark of a true lady who shows American grit in the face of an unjust accusation. And those who were less sympathetic or were suspicious of her thought that it showed a coolness. She was, in fact, referred to as the Sphinx of coolness that seemed almost masculine and therefore consistent with premeditated murder. So she is arrested for this crime, and the the majority of your book is is about this fairly extraordinary trial. What should people know about the story of how it came to be that that Lizzie Borden was was accused of these crimes? 
it became clear that the Bordens were not a normal family, that it was a house full of seething discord, and there was an implacable dispute between the younger and older Bordens over money and property. And that was enough to puncture ideas about criminality at the time, which would have made it very unlikely for someone like Lizzie Borden to have committed the crimes. It was also discovered that she tried to buy prussic acid the day before the murders, which suggested that she had planned to do this. She was unable to get it, and that went a long way towards explaining why someone like Lizzie Borden might pick up a readily available household implement if she was unable to procure the more feminine weapon of poison. A friend of hers also testified that she successfully burned a dress that had been stained with paint. And that gave the prosecution a way to explain how Lizzie Borden had not been spattered with any blood or seen with any blood stains after the murders. What were the reactions of, of the public? I, I know that you write in the book about the the differences in opinion about Lizzie Borden's guilt or innocence, depending on on maybe where you you fall in society. So so w- what were people thinking and talking about it at the time? Well, it was clear that there was a class divide, certainly within Fall River. The Irish Catholic paper essentially called for Lizzie Borden's arrest much earlier and wrote scathing editorials and commentary about how if. Bridget Sullivan, the you know Irish domestic or some mill hand, had been accused of the murders or thought to have committed the murders. She wouldn't have been handled with such kid gloves. The elite in Fall River tended to back their own and lent support. I found it intriguing that the outsiders, the big-time New York journalists who came in, tended to sympathize more with Lizzie Borden, that they saw – they saw in her this ladylike figure who had been wrongfully accused. And, and how did those opinions change amongst all of these groups when in June of 1893 she was, she was acquitted? What, what did people make of, of this acquittal? There was a huge celebration at the time. Local reporters said that, that cheers could be heard from a mile away and – Crowds thronged to greet and cheer the former defendant, Lizzie Borden, when she left the courthouse with her hand on her lawyer's arm. Um, But when she returned to Fall River, she found that things had changed. Within a month, she was effectively frozen out of her church. She found the pews empty around her own seat. And this this was, after all, the community that had provided the bedrock of her support They were perfectly happy to back her when it was a case of murder that would have reflected very badly on the town as a whole, but probably not so keen to have her to tea. You've been researching this case for for a long time. Why did you get interested in this in the first place? I always thought it it gave us a great window into the Gilded Age, which is which of course now is uh, seems to be an age very much like our own. The case is also, you know, it's it's a who done it and if even if you think it's not a who done it, it's certainly a why done it. And I thought it com- combined much of the interest of a of a locked room mystery where you know, it's it seems like almost an impossible crime on some level. 
but it has these mythic qualities too because it's the story of stripped of its context it's the story of an extremely unhappy family where violence breaks out and what has changed in your mind as you've researched this over the course of the last 20 years did you come in with preconceptions that have maybe shifted over time well i'm struck by the way that that every generation seems to get its own lizzie huh. that for, for exactly the same reasons that she was such an object of projection at the time where people essentially decided that she must have this particular character to make her either guilty or innocent. We find in the case a way to project our own fears and anxieties. And so the solutions tend to reveal much more about the people who are interpreting the case and change, as I said, over time. The book is called The Trial of Lizzie Borden, A True Story. And the author is Carl Robertson, who joined us from New York today. Cara, thank you so much for joining us on Next. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This month marked the end of a long legal battle between America's oldest Jewish congregation in New York City and its oldest synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island. A court ruled the Newport Synagogue could not sell a piece of American history because the New York congregation technically owns it. Shane McKeon at the Publix Radio has the story. On the side of Toro Synagogue, there's this plaque that shows just how old this building is. It is so old that our first president wrote it a letter. In 1790, George Washington wrote to this congregation that, quote, happily, the government of the United States gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance. I'm standing there talking into my microphone, looking just a little bit out of place, and who should walk up behind me but Toro's rabbi, Mark Mandel. He's eager to tell me just how long this building has been here, 250 years. It's older than this country. And, uh, you know, every time we go in here, it's a special feeling that uh, we are part of history. Back in 2011, the congregation that practices here, called Jesuit Israel, they wanted to start an endowment to keep this place around for years to come. They plan to raise money by selling these 250-year-old silver bells, these bells designed to adorn a Torah scroll. They were crafted for the synagogue long ago by a guy named Meyer Myers, this famous colonial silversmith who was Jewish. At one point, Myers apprenticed for another famous silversmith named Paul Revere, all of which means these bells are super valuable. So Jesuit Israel arranged to sell the bells to Boston's Museum of Fine Arts for $7.5 million. Gary Naftalis represented Jesuit Israel in court. They wanted to ensure that the Toro Synagogue was preserved as a, a place of worship where Jews could go and pray there forever and not simply turn into a museum like some of the old synagogues in Europe. Except there was just this one problem. They didn't own these ritual objects. That's Lou Solomon. He's the lawyer for Sheriff Israel, the congregation in New York that claimed it owned Toro and with it, these bells. So, how could a congregation 180 miles from Rhode Island say they own a synagogue here? Well, some years after Washington's letter, toward the beginning of the 1800s, something happened at Toro. The congregation that had been there just sort of dissipated. Services at the synagogue stopped, and the building, according to one history, was left to the bats and moles. Around that time, a lot of Newport's Jews had moved to New York City, and down at Sheriff Israel, the congregation started hearing that this synagogue in Newport had fallen into disrepair. So Sheriff Israel stepped in. They took this empty synagogue and looked over it for decades. Until later that century, Jews came back to Newport, 
a congregation began and called itself Jesuit Israel. And in 1903, Jesuits signed a lease with Sheriff Israel and the Newport congregation began worshiping at Toro as a tenant. Now, fast forward a century to this court fight over the bells, and it's this lease from 1903 that an appellate judge cites in his decision. The lease, he says, shows that Sherith is the owner, Jesuit is the tenant, and so these bells, they belong to the congregation in New York. Jesuit Israel may not sell them. And this case is a good example of how a court might rule when it really, really wants to keep church and state separate. Eric Rosbach is senior counsel at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. So pretend this is not two churches or two synagogues, but instead it's two bowling leagues. There used to be one bowling league that owned one bowling alley, and they split up. Now the court has to decide who owns the bowling alley. Now transpose this to this much more historic situation. The principles really ought to be the same. That is, what do the contracts say? Jesuit Israel petitioned the Supreme Court to revisit the case, but the high court declined. And so that's it. Jesuit Israel may not sell the bells to the Museum of Fine Arts, but for the museum going public, they might not know any different because those bells, they're on loan at the museum now. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Shane McKeon. Coming up, we'll meet a pop star on the rise who crafted her music in her rural New England bedroom. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Melville Charitable Trust. The South by Southwest Festival in Austin, Texas, has become music's biggest showcase event. There's so much happening there that NPR music critic Stephen Thompson helpfully curated a list of 100 artists worth watching called the Austin 100. On that list is a pop singer whose national profile is rising. She calls herself Sir Baby Girl. She's not from one of the country's big music scenes, though. In fact, she recorded her debut album in her childhood bedroom in rural New Hampshire. Producer James Napoli has the backstory. We're in a tiny venue in a small town in Vermont. This is an odd space. The walls are lined with strange artifacts and curiosities, including a canning jar that holds Elvis's gallstones, or so the label says. It's the type of place where outcasts and misfits feel right at home. Tonight's performer is no exception. It's Kelsey Hogue, a.k.a. Sir Baby Girl. She's wearing a backwards bubblegum pink ball cap and shiny silk robe. She cradles the mic close to her mouth. Her lips are painted cornflower blue, the same as her eyeshadow. This isn't the type of performer you might expect to see in rural New England, but Hogue's been here for the past year, since she moved back in with her parents. This is my childhood bedroom, and I guess it still is because I'm still a child and it's still a bedroom. Her space is half bedroom, half music studio. The lavender walls are covered in ticket stubs, musical theater flyers, photos of female pop idols, awkward middle school portraits. There are instruments everywhere. We got an acoustic guitar, we have an electric guitar, which I bedazzled. Well, my first instrument was saxophone, alto saxophone, because of Lisa Simpson, and then, and then bass, because I wanted to play Maxwell's Silver Hammer. Hogue took up singing as a teenager and dreamed of becoming a Broadway star. She studied theater in Boston, but that didn't work out. 
So she moved to Chicago to be a stand-up comic. That didn't work out either. Then she got fired from her job and sunk into depression. But out of these failures, she wrote a song called Heels. It's super catchy. I kissed your mouth and forgot what it sounded like Hounds in the wasted light She posted it on SoundCloud and Instagram. Lots of people liked it, including her family back in New Hampshire. I got a call from my brother one day, and he was just like, you should move home. You need to do your music. And I was like, I think you're right. At that point, she realized she really did want to make music, but didn't have the money or support to do it in the city. So she moved back home. I'm running home with my heels on my head And everything, everything that you said She set up this studio and taught herself how to record and produce her own tracks. The style's a mixture of musical theater, absurdist comedy, and pop. Every, like, I want to be addicted to my own songs. You know, that's my goal when I write my songs is I want them to be just like, have to play it again, have to play it again. It's bubblegum pop. You have to chew on the bubblegum, and then when it loses its flavor, you put another piece in. But the songs are more than empty calories. For Hogue, they're an expression of her identity as a non-binary, bisexual person. I identify with being a girl, but I also identify with being a boy. I feel like I am a girl and a boy. So yeah, so I use she, hers, her as my pronoun, so like... Sir Baby Girl, she's over there. Or I use they, them, theirs, so like Sir Baby Girl, they're over there. Or I've started using he, him, his, Sir Baby Girl, he's over there. Um, For me, like, each pronoun feels affirming. You can hear these themes in many of her songs, like the tracks Flirting With Her, Pink Light, and Cheerleader. I'm just, like, obsessed with gender extremes and gender expression extremes, so I love that cheerleaders are extremely feminine and extremely masculine. I want to fall like a cheerleader. For the record, there were no cheerleaders in her high school. Still, the teenage experience looms large in Hogue's music. I'm kind of, I feel like I'm going back and queering my growing up experience. Like, I wasn't out. I didn't even know I could be. And in high school, Hogue could see her peers every day. Now, it's not so easy. Most of her friends have moved away. She's isolated. That was something that I knew going into moving back here for a year. I was just like, that's the sacrifice I'm going to make is like, I'm not going to have a traditional social life of someone in their 20s, I guess. So she goes online, where she's built an active following on Instagram. She shared her music there, which actually caught the attention of an indie label. Now Hogue has a deal with Father Daughter Records. It's a huge step, but still no guarantee that she'll be a star. So she keeps hustling. All I want to do now is just play live and tour it and tour it and tour it and like be around humans again. And she has another dream. Honestly, I really want backup dancers. Like, it's not a joke. It's this is not a drill. I really want two backup dancers. They're all dancing and they're all free. I was once them, but now I freeze when someone approaches. And I think I might know them, know them, and no one knows the difference from my laughter and my screams when everyone around me is pointing shots under the sea. One of her biggest supporters is Matt Mazur. He's booked here at a few local shows. He's seen hundreds of artists play here, but when he saw Sir Baby Girl take the stage for the first time, she stood out. 
you can really tell that Kelsey wanted to to make that leap and has been putting a lot of time and effort into preparing for that. It's so magic to see it happen. It seems like she's inspiring a lot of people to to be who they are and be okay with that. That's Hannah Hoffman, a performer and Hoag's close friend since high school. I mean, it's hard enough to just exist as a human. So it's like really cool to have somebody help you feel like what you're doing and who you are is justified and important. Back at the show, Sir Baby Girl's on stage in her pink hat and blue lipstick. Before her final song, she makes a big announcement. I am moving to Brooklyn in a month. Come find me. Come find me. Tonight, in front of a few dozen people in small-town Vermont, Sir Baby Girl is still dreaming of becoming a queer pop idol. But in just a few months, she'll play for packed crowds at the country's biggest music showcase, with two backup dancers by her side. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm James Napoli in White River Junction, Vermont. For the last few minutes of the show, we're going to let you hear another sound you might not expect in a quiet country town. Tucked away in the northwest corner of Connecticut, just a few miles from the Massachusetts border, stands the New England Accordion Connection and Museum Company. The museum houses over 600 accordions, thousands of pages of sheet music, and a jukebox filled with accordion music. Producer Lily Tyson went to check it out and to meet its creator, Angelo Paul Ramuni. The story starts when I was 10 years old, out on Long Island, Italian family. My mother came to me. That fateful day, she came to me and said, your father and I want you to learn how to play the accordion. And I looked at her. I remember it vividly. I looked at her and I said, Mom, anything but that. Anything but that. (laughs) So for about seven years, uh, maybe almost eight, I took lessons, played in a band, competitions, and uh, high stress, and I learned how to play. But when I was going to Fairfield University, I put that thing back in the closet, and it stayed there for 42 years. (music) 2008, at this point, my wife and I were in Vermont, and I woke up one morning, sat on the edge of the bed, and I had this urge to play the accordion again. The museum got opened in October 2011, and we had about 100 accordions, and it just started. We found more of them as we um, moved along, and people brought them in because they want to see them go to a a place where somebody might get some use out of them. Uh, And generally, the accordions they bring in belong to uh, relatives of theirs or close friends, and they've been sitting in a closet, and they just didn't want to throw them out. It was um, something that someone very precious or somebody very important in their family used to play. All right, this is a nice polka. 
This is something Carl Sandburg, great American poet, wrote about the concept of happiness. I asked the professors who teach the meaning of life to tell me what is happiness. And I went to famous executives who bossed the work of thousands of men. They all shook their heads and gave me a smile as though I was trying to fool with them. And then one Sunday afternoon, I wandered out along the Des Plaines River and I saw a crowd of Hungarians under the trees with their women and children and a keg of beer and an accordion. I put that there only because that's what we got here. We're happy. And you need the beer, you need the family, (laughs) but you need the accordion too. Isn't that nice? Now, we can, uh, well, we can take you to Italy. It's a very cheap trip. But all I got to do is change some of the settings and... uh, Even the people that don't want to be here, they're here because a spouse, a friend, dragged them along. Uh, they smile. They giggle. Uh, they, they, they just shake their heads, and, but everybody's laughing, smiling. There's no political differences. There's no religious differences. We're just all of a sudden having fun together. And they're all strangers. You have to smile. It's the accordion. <laughs> That story was produced by Lily Tyson. And finally, if you've noticed the music on today's show, not just the stories about Sir Baby Girl and accordions, but all of the music on our show, it comes from artists right here in New England. With help from our partner stations, we've gathered lots of homegrown instrumental music of all kinds from around our region. If you've got music you'd like to have featured on our program or you'd like to let us know about a favorite artist, drop us a line. It's next at ctpublic.org. We'll make sure to give you credit, and we're building New England playlists to share with you, too. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. And if you like what you hear, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. You can also follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Our program is produced by Lily Tyson. The digital producer is Carlos Mejia. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. We had help this week from Chris Albertine and Paul Roost. Our music this week is by Todd Merrill. Good night, Blue Moon. Wise Old Moon and Angimaly. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and The Public Radio.